It was a sunny July 23, 1983. Little Don Jacinta Tay Aishan put on her roller skates and went out to her car porch. Don was the daughter of Robert Tay, a known business owner and philanthropist in Singapore. As she headed down, she saw two men just outside. They were fixing their motorcycles. I wonder what's in their green bag, she thought. They sure are taking a long time to fix that motorcycle. She thought again as she returned to the study room. Dawn's schedule was routine. Wake up at 7.30am, roller skate, open the gate for her tuition teacher, Madam Tang, then close the gate. Except today, the gate would not close and the two motorcyclists would walk in. They would interrupt both Madam Tang and Little Dawn in the middle of spelling and dictation with a rifle and a knife. Then proceed to round up the family, demanding cash and jewellery. Look, Mr. Robert Tay, we are here only for the money. If there isn't the money, then we'll leave with something else. Robert took a deep breath. Okay, there's money in the bank. I can get it for you. Good. One of the men might have replied, If everything goes as planned today, we will leave with the money and no one gets hurt. Robert Tay might have felt momentary relief as he opened the gate, headed to the bank and returned home with another of the motorcyclists. But nothing would go according to plan and that would be the last time that the gate would welcome little Dawn's father back. This is Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by OneUp Media. But first, a message from this episode's partner. Asia. It is the largest and most diverse continent in the world. But along the many beautiful tourist spots and attractions exist some truly interesting and sometimes downright horrifying true crime stories. Hi, my name is Christine Abrigana and I host Asia in the Shadows, a weekly true crime podcast. Every week on a Wednesday, I release true crime stories from all over Asia. I have covered cases from Japan, India, Hong Kong, the Philippines, South Korea, and so many more. If you're into true crime or if you just want to dabble here and there, then do consider subscribing to my podcast on platforms such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts in order to get regular updates every time I release an episode. And now, back to Heinous. In the last episode, we learned about Sek Kim Wah and New Kok Meng, the perpetrators, and Mr. Robert Tay's family, the victims. We also learned that Sek Kim Wah had a particularly cruel childhood, where his brother Kim Seong would attest in court that both him and Kim Wah had felt rejected by their parents and society. So why then did Kim Seong decide to become an electrician, while Kim Wah decide to commit the ultimate sin? The attachment theory details how your relationship with your parents, starting in infancy, can lay the foundations for your future relationships in adulthood. 
there are primarily four different attachment styles. And if all goes well in our childhood, we grow up to have secure attachments. That is, we are able to form healthy long-term relationships with others. But if your parents were not around and were perhaps even your source of fear, then you might grow up having a disorganized sense of attachment. This would describe individuals who are highly inconsistent in behavior and who do not trust others. Parental upbringing in your early years might not define the rest of your life, but it can most definitely have an impact. Through all the records, both Kim Seong, Kim Wah, and even their father would mention how the two siblings were not well taken care of and were even abused. But for Kim Seong, two things seem to have happened differently from Kim Wah. Number one, he was about two years older than Kim Wah, which meant he would have spent more time with their grandmother before living off the streets. While their grandmother was tough, she did care for their needs. And number two, Kim Seong seemed to have learned a different side of relationships through the romantic novels that he read in the rehabilitative training center. While we assume he knew that the books were fictional, it did give him something aspirational to desire, other than violence. However, we believe that there were other factors at play that might have influenced Se Kim Wah. Nonetheless, as we discovered what he was about to do, we knew he was no victim either. Se Kim Wah was in a Mercedes-Benz with Mr. Robert Tay, heading towards the bank. Just minutes before, Kim Wah and Kok Meng had just barged into Robert's home and robbed them at gun and knife point before demanding for Robert to draw more cash from the bank. The night before the robbery, Kok Meng and him agreed that they would not kill anyone and that they would go there purely for the money. As they talked and shook on the agreement, Kim Wah felt like a raffia string had bound his neck and hands to the words. I guess that's what a promise feels like. Kim Wah might have thought. A voice broke through the clutter of his mind. You're a young man, right? Mr. Robert Tay whispered. You've got a whole future ahead of you. Why turn to robbery? Sekimwa had nothing to say. Wait, do I know you? Mr. Robert Tay continued. You were the boy that came over to my factory to work and my garden to plant orchids. Kimwa, how are you? Sekimwa froze. It felt strange to be seen. All throughout society, he was thrown away, ignored, rejected. But this man, Mr. Robert Tay, knew who he was. He felt his cheeks pinching themselves and his lips curling. Am I feeling happy? Sekimwa was thinking. But the scars of society had already left their mark and a familiar memory began bubbling inside him. It brought him back to the Hawker Centre car park at Marine Parade where his first victim, the husband, looked right at him and acknowledged who he was for the act that he was doing and the rifle he was carrying. Don't move. Hey, that's from Army Cam, right? You know it's a serious offence to steal a gun. Just give me everything you have. Don't play around with me. The memory was bubbling beside his promise to Kok Meng as he felt the raffia string around his neck and hands snap. They turned into the bank and Robert drew some money before they headed back home. All the while, Robert could tell something was wrong. It was as if Sekimwa broke after he recognised him. This moment would be brought up in court by Sekimwa as the pivotal moment for why he broke his promise to Kok Meng and decided that leaving with the money 
was not enough. The 23rd of July 1983 would change Little Dawn's life forever. After Robert returned, all his family members were gagged and bound. Come here, Mr. Robert Tay. Kim Wah called on her father. Mr. Robert Tay stood up and left for the study room. Is he turning the place upside down? Dawn's mind couldn't stop thinking. And what is that thumping sound? Kim Wah returned, but not with her father. He then called for her mother and her maid. Be brave, darling. A whisper came from her mother as she left the room. Dawn could hear the man dragging them both towards the master bedroom. And again, that thumping sound came with the same constant rhythm. Be brave, dear. Dawn held on to her mother's words as she inched towards her tutor, Madam Tang. But first, a message from our partner. Do you believe in ghosts? I told them straight. I said, uh, your room got ghosts. I want to change room. Are you attracted to spirits? Uh, it's a choice that I constantly make. I'm not going to go down that path anymore. Or are they attracted to you? From aliens to apparitions, hauntings to heebie-jeebies. They, they freak me out. La. They freak me out. La. We've got just the podcast for you. They saw a shadow of a person outside the window and they were on the third floor. Join us on Radio Paranormal Singapore as we air and discuss your stories. The fan was spinning but the power switch was not connected. Your experiences. I look away and I look back at the rearview mirror. I'm talking about this now. My hair is standing. <laughs> It's Timo and E.T. back with a new show of our own. Radio Paranormal Singapore. Available on podcast platforms everywhere. Now back to Heinous. Kim Wah's fingers were squeezing tight. He noticed Mr. Robert Tay's strange expression as his fingers were holding on to the raffia string. This is taking too long. Kim Wah thought, so he let Mr. Robert Tay go and grabbed the wooden stool nearby. He looked at Mr. Robert Tay's clean head and smashed the wooden stool right onto it once. Mr. Robert Tay continued moving. He smashed it twice. Mr. Robert Tay was still twitching. He smashed it thrice. Better to be safe than sorry, Kim Wah might have thought, and he bashed Mr. Robert Tay's head right in. He stopped moving. That day, Mr. Robert Tay died at 61 years old with strangulation marks on his neck and a fractured skull. What if he told his wife and made about me? The thought began festering in Kim Wah's mind as he took a break. What if he told his wife and made about me? He went back into the room where Dawn was in and pointed at the wife and the maid. You and you, come here. He left them in the master bedroom before heading to the kitchen to grab a bunch of wires and an extension cord. He took the two wires, stuffing one end into the extension cord before he approached Mrs. Tay. He placed his hand into her mouth and removed the gag. (gasps) Stick out your tongue for me. 
he said. Mrs. Tay felt a strange sharp object onto her tongue. She braced herself, but nothing happened. She heard a cackling noise, and maybe a soft whisper, as the sharp metal objects left her mouth. (laughs) Silly me. The power wasn't on. She heard the sound of a switch clicking. Then, a tickling of her feet. But again, nothing happened. According to the records, Sekimwa was testing a new murder methodology. He wanted to learn to electrocute a person and would admit to spending a few minutes meticulously testing his methods, which included electrocuting fish in a bowl. But somehow, it would not work. Sikimwa would explain himself in court the frustration that he felt. I was wondering why it would kill the fishes, but not a human. Since electricity could not kill, I decided to kill the victims by strangling them, using the old method. He would dig deep into the necks of both of his victims before beating them with a chair over and over again. On the 23rd of July, 1983, Mrs. Annie Tay, at age 45, and Miss Jovita S. Virador, 27, would have died with deep strangulation marks on their necks and contusions from a wooden stool. Dawn, at age 10, would have lost both her parents and become an orphan. While the situation looked bleak for both Dawn and her tutor, Madame Tang, something phenomenal was about to happen that explains how they survived. Kokmung was confused as to why they were thumping noises within the house, so he followed them and heard them getting louder and louder as he approached the master bedroom. He turned to see Sekimwa holding a stool and using it to smash two bodies. Something within him stirred. We promise not to commit any violence. Kokmung was thinking, we only need the money. It was unclear what clicked within Kokmung. Maybe it was the memory of how violence killed his best friend, Lao Binghyung, or that murder was just a line that he would not cross. But a couple of things started adding up for him. He would realize that Sikimwa had broken his promise of non-violence and seemed like he wanted to kill off everyone. He would also notice that he was holding a gun, a weapon that Sikimwa could use to increase his intentions by tenfold. No one else has to die, Kokmung thought as he rushed back into the room with Dawn and her tutor. Kokmung would rush into the room, lock the door that he came in before untying both Dawn and her tutor's hands. What is happening? One of them might have shouted towards Kokmung. He felt overwhelmed with the memories of everything that he had done. I'm sorry, but both of you will need to go now. Kokmung would have checked if Sekimwa had left before opening the door for both Dawn and Madame Tang to run out. As Dawn was running, she would recall passing by the two rooms, the study room where she would see her father on the floor and the master bedroom where her mother and maid lay dead. Both would run into the neighbor's house and scream as loudly as they could. Please, somebody help us. The aftermath of the Andrew Road triple murder 
saw a raid at Block 12 Alexandra Road on the 29th of July 1983, just one week after the incident. Sekimwa was apprehended at his sister's house in the toilet where he was trying to take his own life. Part of the reason behind the quick arrest was a map drawn by New Kok Meng of the house that Sekimwa was living in. After Kimwa's arrest, Kok Meng, who had escaped to Malaysia, approached the police station in Kuala Terengganu at 10.30pm on the 1st of August 1983 and confessed everything. It was recorded that he could not live with the guilt of his actions. Both were brought before a court in Singapore and Sekimwa was sentenced to death by hanging for five murders, two in Marine Parade and three on Andrew Road. Upon hearing his sentence, records would state that he thanked the court and exclaimed that he always thought it would be thrilling to die in the gallows. His sentence was carried out on the 9th of December, 1988. As for New Kok the court acknowledged that he hadn't intended to commit murder and as such should not be charged for it. He also showed great remorse and provided aid to the police every step of the way after he turned himself in. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, which in Singapore would be 20 years in prison with a chance of parole after. He was also caned six times. It is presumed at the time of this episode airing that New Kok Meng has been released from prison and likely gone to Malaysia. Throughout our research, we couldn't help but wonder retrospectively, what if Kimwa had seen the damage that Lim Ban Lim did to his own family? Would he still aspire to be that man? The legend that was built around Lim Ban Lim was filled with tragedy surrounding the people who knew him. In December 1977, Lim Ban Lim's brother had been stabbed in the thigh and head by a mob of 10 youths. Even his brother's friends were injured during the altercation. And what if he had experienced a loving family growing up? Or if he had someone to motivate him or guide him to build a future? We considered these questions because we know these things matter. According to the records, what pushed Sek Kimwa over the edge to commit the Andrew Root murders was a letter from a coffee shop girl whom he loved. The defence would use this to provide some justification for his actions. We couldn't find the letter, but it's assumed that this letter broke Sek Kimwa's heart. Because of a statement that Sek Kimwa gave in court, he said, After receiving the letter, I had the impression that there was no one to supervise me and I could do whatever I liked. I was frustrated. I like when someone tries to exercise control over me, to care for and look after me. But all they were interested in was money. Since all anyone ever cared about was money, I would get it by hook or by crook. And the more, the merrier. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by 1UP Media. If you would like to share some feedback or suggest other cases that you would like us to cover, you can reach out to us via email at heinous at oneupmediapodcast.com or through our Instagram or TikTok page at heinous underscore oneupmedia. This episode of Heinous was researched, produced and written by Yo Guang Jin with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks as well to executive producers Danny Cordy and Barry Toh from Mediacorp. We hope to see you again soon in the next episode of Heinous. Heinous.